Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, greetings to all of you. The last few weeks, uh, I've been busy in my role as community pastor for Northeast Calgary, trying to help people find community in our church. Because it's that time of the year to start new groups. And I'm excited to let you know that uh, five new community groups have started just in my area of the city in the month of September. And numerous other groups have started in different ministry areas as well. And we celebrate that. You know, when people take one night a week to connect with other believers, it may sound simplistic, but it has a profound impact in your spiritual life. And life change happens in community. Many of the new leaders that I have this fall were trained earlier this year through a four-week module we offered called the CGL 180. If you look at your bulletin, it has more information about this leadership training we are offering again for those of you who feel called to lead. So if you sense the Lord is calling you to lead a community group in our church, this is a great opportunity uh, that we want to extend to you. So please go to the Connect table in the atrium after the service if you're looking for more information or if you want to sign up. Now at this time, I want to welcome all those who are watching from our various regionals, uh, the Crowfoot Theaters in Northwest Calgary, our regionals in Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. But can we give a warm CSE welcome to those who are watching from our regionals as well as our online audience? That's awesome. You know, as you read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Mark and Luke, you will see that a frequent response of people to Jesus' works and miracles were a sense of awe and amazement. At least 30 times in the Gospels, we read about people being amazed at Jesus' teachings, His authority, the exorcisms He performed, and His miracles. That's not surprising, isn't it? And what else would you expect? Jesus was God in flesh. So when people rub shoulders with Jesus, they rub shoulders with God. When people saw Jesus' face, they saw the face of God. So a response of wonder and amazement in people is quite understandable. There are numerous times people were amazed at Jesus. But do you know that there are only two times in the Gospels where it explicitly says Jesus was amazed. Only two times. What was Jesus amazed at? It will take something really, really special to blow Jesus' mind, right? And his amazement had to do with people's faith and the lack of it. Two ends of the spectrum. Jesus was amazed at faith and he was amazed at the lack of faith. Once in the Gospels, Jesus was amazed at someone's faith, the faith of a Roman centurion. Jesus commended him more than anyone else in Israel. And we will look at this fascinating story in Luke chapter 7, the next time I preach in a couple of weeks' time. But there's a second instance in the Gospels when Jesus was amazed at the lack of faith of those who were closest to him the people from his own hometown. And that's the passage I want to focus today as we take a closer look at their amazing unbelief. 
you please stand as we read our text from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Lord, as we come before your presence, we confess there are times in our life when our faith is weak and we struggle with unbelief. But today we pray that you will strengthen our faith, that you will increase our faith as we come to know you and your character. Our confidence in you will grow stronger. So cause these words that we read to come alive in our hearts by the power of your Spirit. Individualize this message to every single one of us here. We commit this time into your hands. We pray this in the most powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Justin Bieber was born in the small town of Stratford, Ontario, with a population of about 30,000 people. His YouTube videos propelled him to worldwide fame and turned him into a celebrity at age 14. After all the crazy reputation and acclaim he has received, this small town has cashed in on Justin's popularity. So in the website visitstratford.ca, you find these words. Everybody knows it, Justin Bieber is from our town. He's a Stratford, Ontario boy. And he's our favorite pop star. And although he's now an international musical sensation, he still comes back regularly to visit his good friends. When Justin was growing up, there were a lot of places around Stratford where he hung out, from the steps of the A1 Theater where he first started singing to the place where he went on his first date. We've created a map to help you take a tour of Justin Bieber's Stratford. If I might add, they're giving you a pilgrimage in the footsteps of Justin Bieber. <laughs> so you can see the schools he went to, the ice cream parlor he visited after soccer games, and the skate park where he learned the moves that we now see in his videos. Well, that's a good example of how a small town will respond to its homeboy. Now, Jesus was also back in his small town after a year since he left Nazareth. A lot had happened in this one year. Jesus had launched his public ministry and announced that he was the Messiah. 
And reports started spreading about his authoritative preaching, the works he performed, opening blind eyes, cleansing the lepers, healing the diseased, and casting out demons. Jesus' reputation just began to grow, and everyone started asking this question, who is this? A year had gone by, and Jesus' popularity chart had started to climb. And now Jesus was back in his hometown, visiting the synagogue that he had attended for 30 years. It was the same place where Jesus had received spiritual training. Detailed instructions on the laws of the Old Testament. And he had probably heard hundreds of sermons around this theme. But that day was special because it was Jesus' turn to preach in the synagogue. And it was a significant occasion that stirred up the sleepy little town. And you have to know something about Nazareth. Nazareth was a small town of less than 2,000 people. Tiny, insignificant, and unheard of. There are over 650 references to Jerusalem in the Old Testament, but Nazareth completely escapes the attention of the Old Testament writers. Yet it is in this obscure agricultural community that the Son of God would spend the first three decades of his life. And if you have lived in a small rural community, you know that everyone knows everyone. Someone said, there's not much to see or do in a small town, but what you hear sure makes up for it. <laughs> so the people of Nazareth knew all about Jesus. They'd seen him grow from a little toddler to a grown-up man. They knew that Jesus was their friendly neighborhood carpenter. And now it is astonishing to see their reaction to Jesus' ministry among them. The people of Nazareth were not giving raving reviews about their home star. You don't hear the, the people of Nazareth say, that's our boy. We knew that he was always in a league of his own. It's no surprise. He was a prodigy. We knew a long time ago that this child was destined to be great. You don't hear those words. But what you hear are words of scorn and sarcasm. And what is strikingly amazing here is their unbelief to the point even Jesus was stunned by it. The people of Nazareth missed out on so much because of their unbelief. We all have heard of how powerful faith is. That faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. But do you know the power of unbelief? Unbelief is also a spiritual force, and it robs us of God's blessings. Unbelief doesn't just hinder the work of God. It even limits what God intends to do. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 opens with these words. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. The people of Nazareth had invited Jesus to teach them on the Sabbath day. They've heard all these wild reports about Jesus, 
And now they wanted to verify it for themselves. Jesus, on his part, came to Nazareth not to show off his skills, not to make a statement, but he wanted to establish God's kingdom in Nazareth. He desired that the folks who were closest to him would hear the good news and come under the reign and rule of God. Jesus longed to share the gospel with people in his own neighborhood. When he spoke in the synagogue that day, there was rapt attention. Eyes were riveted on Jesus. What is the popular preacher going to say? There was pin drop silence, and everyone was looking towards Jesus. And what they heard that day was pretty significant. It was profound and convicting, and our passage tells us that they were amazed at his teaching. Now, what did Jesus teach in the synagogue that morning? The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke also record this incident of Jesus coming to Nazareth. Most scholars agree that all three Gospels are referring to the same episode. Now, here is Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21, where you see Luke's version of Jesus' visit to the synagogue in Nazareth. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The people of Nazareth that day did not hear a typical sermon that morning. They were unlike the words of a rabbi or a teacher who would expound the Old Testament law. This was not just another dull discourse about obeying the laws of God or explaining the hope of the future kingdom that was going to come. But what they heard that day was radical. Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God as a present reality that he was initiating. And when Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he was claiming himself to be the anointed one, the Messiah. And Jesus was not just proclaiming good news, he declared that he was the good news. And he announced that the good news of his coming will heal the brokenhearted, bring liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, it will set the oppressed free, and it will launch the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee. Jesus made a bold statement in the synagogue that morning that he is the long-awaited fulfillment of God's plan for the ages. Now, the response of the people in Nazareth to this grand revelation is shocking. You know, when people don't agree with me in the sermon that I preach, I usually get an email or an occasional anonymous note on our communication card. That's about it, thankfully. 
But the people of Nazareth did, did not just mutter words of disapproval to Jesus' sermon. Luke says they drove Jesus out of the town to the edge of the hill and tried to throw him off the cliff. And I tell you, that's taking sermon criticism to an altogether new level. <laughs> the people of Nazareth were gripped with unbelief, and Mark's gospel tells us they took offense at his preaching. The word for offense literally means scandal. The people of Nazareth were scandalized by Jesus. They raised a set of questions in response to Jesus' teaching in the synagogue. Look at Mark chapter 6, the last part of verse 2. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? The right response to that question should have been, his wisdom is from God and the works that he is performing are on behalf of God. But they were put off with Jesus because of their familiarity. Look at the next set of rhetorical questions they raised. In verse 3, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The people of Nazareth knew that Jesus was a carpenter the builder who worked with wood and stone. He was no professional teacher. He was not an ordained rabbi. He was not a scholarly man who could interpret the law. They merely saw Jesus as an ordinary fellow who was one among them. Now, here's an intriguing question they posed. Isn't this Mary's son? Sons in the Hebrew culture were referred to by their father's name even after their father's death. So the people of Nazareth didn't call Jesus as son of Joseph, but son of Mary. That's unusual. And what they're doing is actually taking a cheap, underhanded slam against Jesus' background. They were taking a dig at him by accusing him of illegitimate birth. Ah, this is Mary's son. He had nothing to do with Joseph. We know this fiasco surrounding the story. And they did not stop there. They went on. We know his brothers and sisters. Their entire family is so ordinary. There's nothing special or phenomenal about this family. Just an average labor class home. It was hard for them to believe that the supreme God of the universe would come to them from such a humble family, humble town, and such a humble trade. So in their opinion, Jesus did not fit the bill. You would expect that the people who are closest to Jesus would be the most likely to respond to his message. But that's not the case. The people who were closest to him became his strongest opponents. There's an English proverb that says, familiarity breeds contempt. And you see that being enacted here. 
The ones who watched Jesus grow up in their midst were so focused on the familiar that they allowed it to breed contempt. They couldn't accept that someone they were so intimate with, so familiar with, could be God's anointed. And I see a clear application of this for our society today. When I lived in India, it was common to see shops selling beauty or wellness products from North America or countries in Western Europe like France or Switzerland. And they were in high demand because they are coming from far-off, sophisticated Western countries, and the assumption is they are of better quality. Now, if you go to a health store here in our Western world, what do you see? You see advertisements of age-old remedies from China that can help reduce your weight, or herbs that grow in the Himalayas or in some forest in the Amazon that can treat your wrinkles. The more foreign-sounding a word, the more exotic it feels. Do you see the reason why Eastern religions are so popular in our Western world? It's for the same reason. We think when something is coming from far, it feels exotic and drenched with mysticism. And today we have countries with Christian heritage leave their foundations forget their roots, ignore what they are familiar with, and they look for spirituality and truth and, and all these places in the other side of the world because they seem more mystical and exotic. The words of a New Age guru or practicing yoga seems more appealing than the historical gospel of Jesus Christ. And familiarity continues to breed contempt. You can grow up in a Christian home and be surrounded by the teachings of the faith and allow them to become way too familiar, much too common, and lose your sense of awe. You can be a churchgoer all your life and become desensitized to the wonder of living for Jesus. That's what happened in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And we see that happening in our world today. I want to show you Jesus' response. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. Do you know what is the most difficult place to practice your Christian faith? It's your home. When I became a Christian, I told the Lord to take me to any part of the universe. I was willing to go to any remote corner in this whole wide world. The Lord wouldn't allow me to go anywhere else but my home because he wanted me to live out my faith in the eyes of those who I knew. And honestly, Jesus couldn't have asked something more difficult of me. Our homes are the most difficult place for us to be a witness. And even Jesus faced intense rejection from his own family members, people who were closest to him. The Gospel of John points out, he came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. And you can see the impact of this rejection on Jesus. Jesus did not expect it. 
He had the best intention of seeing his town believe in the good news. But the hardened hearts of his people troubled Jesus. Now look at verses 5 and 6. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. What you see here on full display is the power of unbelief. Jesus could not do any miracles there except heal a few sick people. In the previous chapter, Mark chapter 5, Mark records some inspiring stories of faith. If you remember, I preached a sermon series last year called Mighty Savior. And we looked at these stories in Mark chapter 5. The deliverance of the man with a legion of demons. The healing of a woman with the issue of blood. And the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. Through these miracles, Jesus established his power over demons, sickness, and death. And in Mark chapter 4, he even calmed a furious storm and demonstrated his power over nature. But now in his hometown, this all-powerful Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is limited by the unbelief of his people. And he could not do any miracles in Nazareth. It's stated very strongly in the Greek language with a double negative. Jesus could not do any miracles except lay hands on a few sick people. Now, both Matthew and Mark record the same incident of Jesus coming to Nazareth. I want to show you what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 58. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. But Mark says in our passage, he could not do any miracles there. And you and I know there is a difference between he did not and he could not. So here it raises this important question. Is Jesus' power dependent on our faith? Is his power limited when there's no faith in us? Kent Hughes offers a great response to this question in his commentary on Mark. Listen to these words carefully. Jesus could not do any miracles there because he would not. Omnipotence is not omnipotence if it's bound by anything but its own will. Jesus was morally compelled not to show his power because of their unbelief. I hope you understand this. It's not that Jesus is unable to move in power because of Nazareth's unbelief but he was unwilling to move in power because of Nazareth's unbelief. Jesus did not suffer from a power outage that day because of their lack of faith. They distanced themselves from Jesus' power because of their lack of faith. Jesus is omnipotent. There's nothing that can hinder him or stop him from doing what he wants to do. But he deliberately chose to limit his demonstrations on that day in Nazareth. His original intent was to see his hometown get saved. The people he grew up with to experience the healing and delivering power of the gospel. 
But it's almost like his hands were tied because of the environment of unbelief that stopped him from doing a mighty work that morning. When God looks at us and all he sees is skepticism and cynicism and unbelief, he refuses to show forth his power. He chooses not to demonstrate his strength, and that's how unbelief shuts the work of God. Many blind, lame, deaf continued in their affliction in this small town, and almost everyone remained enslaved to their sins because of their stubborn refusal to believe. Isn't that ironic? And Mark tells us, Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. He couldn't believe that they didn't get it. He was astonished at their lack of faith. It was a shocker. And I tell you, it's a terrifying thought that you and I can amaze Jesus with our unbelief. What happens when unbelief takes over a church? Unbelief will evacuate the church of its power. Unbelief will make us comfortable with the safe, predictable, and familiar. It will lower our expectations and weaken our prayers. It will keep us in the shallow end of the pool where the kids play. And unfortunately, that pretty much describes many churches across North America. They are not powerhouses that are advancing the work of God. Rather, they are weak establishments on life support. I tell you, you can add more programs to a church. We can fill our church schedule with activities. But if you want to see a move of the Holy Spirit, it will take some of us to go down on our knees in faith and beseech God to act on his promises. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 declares emphatically, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, there's no way you and I can please God. What kind of faith is this? Faith is believing God can do what he says he will do. It's taking God at his word. And every mighty move of God is always preceded by strong people of faith who believed no matter how dark the circumstances, the Lord will stay true to his promises. And if you want to see the power of God at work in your life, and if you want to see the power of God at work in our church, then faith is a prerequisite. Because faith is the link to avail God's power. Faith in itself has no power of its own, but it connects us to the power source. Just like when we insert the plug into the socket, we access electricity. 
the same way, faith puts you in touch with the living God. I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like if people come to church every weekend believing that God is and He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. I want you to imagine what it would be like if you live every day of your life holding on to this promise that if you live wholeheartedly for God, He will reward you. You know what it would do? It would raise your level of expectation. We will start believing God to change lives of those who are around us. There will be a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit, and Calgary will be turned upside down. That day, Jesus left Nazareth, and he went on to proclaim the good news to other places. And Jesus would never again step foot in his hometown after that day. He chose places, other towns and villages that were more receptive to the gospel. And you hear about church growth in the global south and church decline in North America and Europe. Why? What is the reason? Author Philip Yancey put it this way, God goes where he is wanted. I want to close with this true story that illustrates what the Lord can do when he sees authentic faith in us. The late Dr. Howard Hendricks tells the story about Dallas Theological Seminary where he worked as a longtime professor. Now, it's an institution the Lord has used to train thousands of men and women for the ministry, including people you know, like Chuck Swindoll, David Jeremiah, Irvin Lutzer, Andy Stanley. They all went through Dallas Theological Seminary. Shortly after this school was founded in 1924, it almost folded because they ran into deep financial challenges and came to the point of bankruptcy. All the creditors were ready to foreclose at 12 noon on a particular day. And that morning, with hours away from foreclosure, the founders of the school met in the president's office to pray earnestly that God would provide. You can see the urgency of the situation. And in that prayer meeting, was a well-known preacher who'd go on to become the pastor of the Moody Church, Harry Ironside. And when it was his turn to pray, Dr. Harry Ironside stood up and said, Lord, we know that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Please sell some of them and send us the money. <laughs> Moments later, a tall Texas rancher strolled into the business office. He said to the secretary, Howdy, I just sold two carloads of cattle over in Fort Worth. I've been trying to make a business deal to come through, but it just won't work. I feel God wants me to give this money to the seminary. I don't know if you need it or not, 
but here's the check. And he handed it over to her. The secretary took the check and knowing how important this was, she went to the place of the prayer meeting and gently tapped on the door. Dr. Louis Schaefer, the founder and president of Dallas Theological Seminary, answered the door and took the check from her hand. He opened it and he looked at the amount. It was the exact amount that they needed. And Dr. Schaefer turned to his friend and colleague, Dr. Ironside, and he said, Harry, God sold the cattle. Church, God still owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is not short of resources. His hand is not shortened that he cannot save. He is well able to meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But it takes faith on our part to tap into the resources of God. When we learn to pray faith-filled prayers, we will see lives change around us. People get saved, churches being revived, God's kingdom advance, and Satan being utterly defeated. And I pray that the Lord will give us such bold and expectant faith to trust Him to do great things in our personal lives and in the life of our church. I'm going to ask all of us to stand as we come to an end. Psalm 121.1 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who's the maker of heaven and earth. If you come here today with a pressing need in your life, I want to point you to the source where your help is going to come from. The Lord who's the maker of heaven and earth. So this time, as we maintain a moment of silence, reach out to him by faith. Whatever need is that you're facing, cry out to him because he hears our prayers. Express your dependence on him. God will show up in this place. God will hear our prayers in Christ. God would do great things beyond our imagination. It's time for us to believe that, hold on to that, and see Him at work. So if you have come with a need, would you use this time to stretch your hands towards heaven and ask for help. Come before him with a childlike faith and ask him to intervene in your life. Let's maintain a moment of silence and I'll close us in prayer.
Word says, without faith, it is impossible to please you. So we come before you today as little children expressing our desperate dependence on you. We don't place our hope and faith in ourselves, in our circumstances, in the people who are around us. But our rock-solid faith is in you and you alone because we know your character. We know that you are a good father who takes care of your children. So we reach out to you by faith, Lord. I pray for every hand that is stretched out right now. Lord, that you will minister to them this very moment. That faith will arise in their heart. That, Lord, you will remove the fear and the anxiety over the unknown. And, Lord, grant them the assurance that you are their good shepherd. And you're going ahead of them and making ways for them. We pray that, Lord, there will be an outpouring of your spirit in our lives and in the life of our church like never before, Jesus. That, Lord, this outpouring of your spirit will result in changed lives, the kingdom of God advancing in our midst and Calgary being turned upside down. We pray by faith boldly because we know what you want to do. We surrender ourselves to you, Lord. Make ourselves available to your purposes to fulfill your agenda for this world. And even as we do that, we pray that you will exalt your name in our lives, in this church, that you will be honored and glorified. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit, May rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter 